What's up, everybody? I hope you guys are doing well. In the last episode, we concluded chapter 13 with the second beast or false prophet putting in place the requirement for the mark of the beast, which is the Antichrist. In order to buy, sell, or really even function in society, you will have to have the mark. Okay, If you don't take the mark, you die. If you don't worship the idol image, uh, which is made in the image of the first beast or the Antichrist, you die. Yet somehow there will be those who make it through, but most will not. And once you receive the mark, your fate is sealed and you are removed from the grace of God or any chance of salvation. For those who are able to avoid getting the mark, they will have a rough few years living in the shadows, scavenging and struggling to survive. Today we move into chapter 14 and we see the scene shift again. We move away from what the devil is doing and focus in on something God is doing or has done at this point. You know, there are a few groups in the tribulation period that we have been following. The Gentile believers, the Orthodox Jews that hold fast to the law of God, um, the remnant of Israel, which is all the Jews that find salvation in Messiah, that that are also the ones that are sent off into the wilderness and protected at, at Petra. And of course, the 144,000 you know, Jewish evangelists. Everyone else just becomes pawns in Satan's little plan. You know, as we dive into chapter 14, John focuses in on one group in particular. This group has, has completed their purpose and becomes the first fruits of the harvest. Let's take a look at chapter 14. Verse 1 says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, so let's be clear. Jesus has not returned or set his feet down on the earth yet. He will not do that until the end of the tribulation period. And right now, we are still moving through the midpoint of the tribulation timeline. So what is John talking about? What is he describing? Well, let's get the obvious out of the way. We know that the Lamb is Jesus, and we know the 144,000 are with him. And there is only one group referred to as the 144,000, and they are not Jehovah's Witnesses. They are the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that God used to spread the gospel to the world during the first half of the tribulation. You might think, you know, wait, I thought they were a part of the remnant that escaped to Petra into the wilderness, into the wilderness under God's protection. And I will help clarify that shortly as well. It says that they are standing on Mount Zion with, you know, which is a real place, by the way, in Israel, just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So how can that be when 144,000 are on earth, as far as we know right now, and Jesus will not return to earth until the end, right? The answer is in the meaning of the use of the word Mount, uh, of the description of Mount Zion. Uh, Hebrews 12:22 says, "But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels." Roman, Romans 11:26. Um, says this, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer, talking about Jesus, will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob here just means the nation of Israel. More importantly, we see through scripture that Mount Zion is referring to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. 
the deliverer, Jesus, will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Israel. And that is what he will do when he returns and punishes the enemies of God and establishes his kingdom on earth. And of course, the new Jerusalem. That means what John is describing is Jesus standing with the 144,000 in the city of God in heaven. Since we know scripture confirms that Mount Zion refers to the new Jerusalem that comes when Jesus returns at the end, that means we know that it's in heaven still currently. So does that mean that the 144,000 are dead and in heaven? I thought they were protected or sealed, right? I will get to that in a moment as well. Verse 2 says, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. This should be a familiar, you know, this should be a familiar description at this point. You know, we've heard it numerous times when describing um, God's presence or even God's voice for that matter or coming from the throne. So, you know, this right here is just John describing the power of God's presence, okay? Um, it just signifies that God's presence is there. But John says that the sound is like harps playing. So what we have is the sound of music coming from the presence of God, and here is why, which the presence of God being at the throne of God in heaven. So here's why. Verse 3 through 4, And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. And we talked about this before when we first mentioned the 144,000. So what John is describing is a scene in heaven with Jesus where the 144,000 are worshiping in the presence of God before the throne, the elders, and the four living creatures. This is a special song that only the 144,000 could sing. No one else could learn this song. It was saved for them and is a special offering of praise that only they were privy to learn. This group is indeed a special group used for a mighty purpose and rewarded greatly. The rest of verse 4 and 5 says, They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They purchase, They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Okay, so they they go wherever God, wherever Christ goes, wherever Jesus goes. They, they follow Him everywhere. Uh, worshiping him and serving him. Now, it says that you know no lie was found. This this group was set aside for a specific purpose, and they fulfilled that purpose and maintained a character that is nothing short of exemplary. They are described as as blameless, not sinless, blameless. You know, they were found having not lied, which is astonishing in it, in itself, really but blameless because they stood against the lies of the enemy and proclaimed the truth, the full truth of the gospel without withholding anything. They they withheld nothing. They were found without fault or defect in their purpose. They did exactly what was asked of them to the letter without wavering. They in turn become the first fruits offered to God and Jesus. John says that they are redeemed from the earth, meaning they are not there anymore and that they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and made righteous before God. He also says that they have been purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits. Jesus purchased purchased them with his blood like he did us. 
You know, but this reference is stating that we have reached a time in this tribulation period where the the great harvest uh, is about to begin or has begun with these guys, a soul harvest. And this group is the first of that great harvest. The first fruits of the harvest that were given to God as an offering was the best of that particular person's harvest. If you had, if you had a crop and you harvested that crop each year, you, when you would offer the first fruits of that harvest, it would have to be the best of, of your crop, the ones that were ripe and without blemish, so to speak. That is what John is saying here. The 144,000 are martyred for their faith, all of them. Many you know, will follow them in martyrdom. That means you know, many of the believers in that time that remain will end up being martyred for their faith. But this group will show the rest how to face it with faith and strength. They will give their life to set the example. God will harvest their souls first. He will allow them to be killed and will bring them into his presence as a special offering and to set the bar for those who remain. So why is this scene put here in chapter 14? It helps us to see the timeline a little better. It shows us that the 144,000 who were commissioned at the start of the tribulation to go out and spread the gospel to all the world have finished their work. It shows that evangelism on earth has come to an end. Regarding being sealed, this group was sealed and protected from the previous judgments of God and from death until they finished their work, just like the two witnesses. With the two witnesses gone and now the 144,000 are gone, there is no more evangelism because we are at that point where God draws a line in the sand, basically, and forces man to pick a side. If you are following the timeline, a lot of things happen right at the midpoint, uh, at the midpoint of this tribulation period, and there is still a uh, you know a little more to go as far as the the midpoint events are concerned. But Satan is defeated uh, in the battle against Michael, and and his angels, of course, are defeated and. And Satan is thrown to the earth permanently. He can no longer access heaven. He is enraged and he goes after the remnant of Israel. Um, talk about the woman that it describes in the Bible. And he is enraged and goes after the remnant of Israel, but God protects them and gets them to safety. So Satan then turns his attention to the other groups mentioned earlier, specifically the believers and the Jews holding to the law. The two beasts are revealed. The Antichrist, or man playing that part, is fatally wounded, appearing dead, and Satan possesses the Antichrist, who then appears to resurrect uh, the body of the Antichrist and fools the entire world, of course, except for the believers and the Jews, of course, that are holding to the law. And he, this, you know, when he resurrects, he subdues three of the ten rulers, absorbing their positions of authority, you know, and he, he kills the two witnesses, um, stops the sacrifices and the practice of Judaism uh, in the temple, and he defiles the, the temple and sets up, uh, through the false prophet, sets up an idol image of the Antichrist or the first beast. And, you know, the, he sets that up in the temple, which, you know, of course, becomes the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk more about later. Um, one world religion is established and you know, at this point, and if you reject it or the mark of the beast, you will be killed. And, you know, so if you don't worship that image, you're killed. If you don't accept the mark, you're killed. And now we know that as the mark is being issued, 
Um, people's fate will be sealed and there will be no more evangelism. There are three groups, however, that remain at this time. The believers, the Gentile believers, the Jews holding to the law of, of Yahweh, of the law of God, and those who take the mark. So God removes his team of evangelists and takes the 144,000 to be with him at this point. If you're curious about the group of Orthodox Jews who hold to the law of God and refuse the mark, we will get to that later. We are almost at the end of the events that happen at the midpoint in the tribulation period, and the final act is underway, and God's final judgment is coming. After removing the two witnesses and the 144,000 signifying the end of evangelism and drawing the line in the sand um, at this point, you know, people have to accept the, the mark and worship the, the false, you know, the beast or the, the, the Antichrist. They either have to accept that or they have to uh, turn to God. There is no in-between at this point. God draws a line in the sand, you know, and despite that and all his mercy, he gives the world another opportunity, a final opportunity to turn to him before all hell breaks loose on earth and his final judgment and wrath is poured out. That is where we pick up tomorrow. Like I said, God is a God of mercy and has shown that he gives more than enough opportunities, but eventually it must come to an end. Tomorrow we pick up with the three angels who deliver a final altar call, so to speak. Uh, one of them, the first one delivers a final altar call, so to speak, and the other two, of course, they deliver a warning, uh, especially the third one who delivers a warning to those who follow the beast. And that will be uh, followed by the beginning of the of the soul harvest, this great uh, soul harvest. And, of course, is going to be where, you know, as we get into the believers and those who begin to be martyred for their faith. Um, so anyway, don't miss it. It gets more intense. But more importantly, we are getting closer and closer to the return of Christ and his kingdom and the ultimate defeat of the enemy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, God, for your mercy and grace. God, you truly are a God of mercy. After all the opportunities given, you give even more. You, you give another one. You know, it just shows your love for, for man, for us. It shows your desire to make sure everyone has an opportunity to give their life to Jesus. God, we, you know, we seem to be running headfirst toward the tribulation period, which means the church will be called home. You know, and I'm grateful knowing that I am saved and my family is saved, but so many are not. And I pray that you will turn up the heat on the church and really pour out your spirit on your people and use use us to be a light to the world, especially to those you put in our path. Let us not withhold the love of Jesus or the truth of the gospel from anyone, but let us be willing to pour it out freely. Use us, Lord, to reach the lost and to strength to strengthen each other. In your name, help us to renew our strength daily, to take up our cross daily, and to stand on your promises daily. Let us speak the truth boldly and with love, and let us praise your name. Amen.